Hi, I'm Darren Steele, and this is Think Queerly, a thought leadership podcast that cultivates inclusion, understanding, and social change for a more accepting, equitable, and humane world. On the show, I explore LGBTQ2S plus history, social and political issues, and I speak with queer leaders who are making a difference for our common humanity. Now, today, I am honored to be speaking with the executive director of the LGBT Purge Fund, Michelle Douglas, a social justice and human rights activist for the last 30 years. Between the 1950s and the 1990s, LGBT members of the Canadian Armed Forces, the RCMP, and the Federal Public Service were systematically discriminated against, harassed, and often fired as a matter of policy and sanctioned practice. In what became known as the LGBT Purge, People were followed, interrogated, abused, and traumatized by their own government. In 2016, survivors of the LGBT purge launched a nationwide class action lawsuit against the Canadian government, and a historic settlement was reached in June 2018. As well as compensating survivors, this settlement allocated funds for reconciliation and memorialization measures. The LGBT Purge Fund is a not-for-profit corporation that was set up to manage these funds. The board is composed of six members and includes LGBT Purge survivors, class action plaintiffs, and representatives of the legal team that challenged the Canadian government. Enjoy the interview. All right, Michelle Douglas, thank you so much for choosing to be a guest on the Think Queerly podcast. I really appreciate the time you're making to speak with me today. My pleasure. Happy to be here, of course. Great. Now, I want to start um, with your backstory and go through a, a life, 30 years of, you know, social justice activism um, on so many different levels before we get into uh, your role and uh, the LGBT purge fund proper. So let's start at the beginning. And I, I know we don't want to go into aspects of conversation uh, or personal history that are too triggering. So please just tell us whatever is relevant that you feel comfortable talking about. But let's sort of start at the beginning, maybe the real beginnings, like what prompted you to want to go into the Canadian military? Yeah, I think many of my friends have wondered the same thing. But, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't have a kind of a family history of folks in the military. So it was a little bit unusual uh, career choice. Um, but I was pretty compelled by the idea of service. Yeah. And so uh, my father was a federal public servant for 35 years. So maybe the family biz was kind mm -hmm. of joining the government in some way. Mm -hmm. um, so after I finished my university degree, I was looking around and I had pretty much decided that I wanted to have a career in law enforcement. I was going to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. About the time, this is around 1985, 86. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of applied to a number of police forces, RCMP, municipal forces. I'm like, oh, hey, the military has a police force. Mm -hmm. I'll apply. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I walked into the recruiting station and uh, they were like, oh, a young woman with a university university degree, slightly interested in the military. Uh, why don't you come back tomorrow? You can sign on the dotted line. And, uh, <laughs> and I did. I, I kind of got instantly excited and uh, hadn't really contemplated it, but uh, deeply at least, uh, kind mm -hmm. of before I did, but I, I got on board and then decided, yeah, you know what, I can, I can do this and I want to do it. So I joined in, uh, 1986. It's interesting. You just, you just reminded me, I completely forgot about this until now, but I know in, I don't know, grade 11, grade 12, when I was in high school, I, I think, one of the things I was looking at aspiring to is maybe being a pilot, you know, the, the, the whatever crazy it is. And I think I was looking at Kingston, if it was called the Royal Canadian Air Force or RCF or whatever the acronym was. And I, I it just, to me, I kind of struggled with that because it, as somebody who was emerging as a gay man, there was kind of that attraction. It's like, oh, I would be around a lot of other men, but at the same time, but I'd be around the wrong kind of men, but I didn't even quite kind of have that intellectual discernment yet. Um, and it just reminds me, it's like, maybe we'll talk at some point about the, the documentary, the 
fruit machine about the purge fund, but I was surprised by the number of women um, that wanted to be part of the military. Uh, and there was, it was just an open question that I was still left with, even though many of the interviewees did like yourself express the why behind it. I think there was a pretty big recruiting effort in the Canadian armed forces, kind of in the, you know, late seventies into the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, you know, to, to recruit women, to lift the numbers of women serving in the Canadian armed forces. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it kind of didn't, didn't reach me or at least they didn't seriously consider it as a career choice for a long time, pretty much until I joined. <laughs> Um, but then I, yeah, I kind of liked the idea of, you know, what the military can be, which is um, someone to, you know, a, 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 an institution, a big force mm. um, that for me stood for things like peacekeeping um, and, um, you know, kind of uh, standing up for Canada, which was another thing I thought was pretty important. So. Yeah. And somebody, at least in our current structure where this institution exists, um, you know, somebody's got to do it. And Mm -hmm. for a long time, it was, you know, um, folks who had few economic opportunities. My economic future was probably pretty bright as a, you know, young woman with a university degree. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably why it wasn't too hard to join. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, I was really proud to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces. Yeah. And then, as we'll really get into, in 1989, you were, and I put in air quotes, honorably discharged. I I hate that phraseology. um, Mm. Under the military's LGBT purge. I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about like, did, did something precipitate that? Did you see that coming coming or was it just simply you were taken into an office and bam, it was done? No, this is, um, you know, kind of a two year journey to me being released from the military. So mm-hmm. I joined in 1986 and was fired in 1989. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was dismissed um, honorably, which actually does help for things like future employment. Yeah. Um, but when During um, the time I joined, I also want to kind of give some context to folks who are listening and watching that, that, um, you know, think about 1985, right, the the, um, operative section of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms known as Section 15, kind of the, you know, the human rights or protection uh, clause that says, Mm -hmm. you know, you cannot be discriminated uh, against on the basis of certain criteria, you know, if woman or, or other criteria on the base of race, religion, and so on. Now, uh, so, you know, Canada has this new constitution uh, active, well, in 1982, but by 85, we have this human rights protection mm-hmm. clause. And so I joined in that environment, and um, I became a military police uh, officer. I got my commission as a second lieutenant um, I was actually really good in the military. I mm-hmm. graduated as the top candidate of every military course I took. I was really thriving in the environment. I was fit and, and smart and able to really um, thrive in that environment. But at the same time, um, what I didn't know when I went in uh, was that um, I really fell for this woman, a fellow uh, officer. Uh, she she was doing her training as well. And, you know, kind of really felt like love for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it happened to be with a same sex um, person, uh, a woman. And the, the military was a place where a lot of women served who happened to be lesbian as well. Yeah, yeah. So in that environment, um, back in the, those days, the military had this policy that said if you're I'm going to colloquially refer to this as if you're gay you can stay but like no pay raises no promotions uh, no training no postings things so you're really stuck under this quite oppressive policy um, meant to drive you out of course and after uh, being posted to a new unit um, I was taken early on uh, by my commanding officer 
um, dropped off at a hotel out by the CFB Toronto, um, by, by, by the airport in Toronto. I was posted to CFB Toronto um, and spent the next two days being interrogated there um, about my sexual orientation, about who else I might know who happens to be gay or lesbian. And, you know, it was really the start of some pretty awful treatment by the military, shaming, um, reducing, you know, my humanity, oppressing, discriminating, you can say many words, but I think, and scarring, damaging, right? You go through those experiences as a young person, say 23 years old, trying to serve your country and you're being interrogated about your sexual orientation. Uh, It's very difficult. And uh, ultimately I was, you know, kicked out of the military in 1989. Uh, Not only, at least I was dismissed honorably, but my release um, record says not advantageously employable due to homosexuality. Okay. Wow. You can, I mean, you, you laugh at it out of discomfort now, right? Of course. Yeah. 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 This is, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was then um, fired as part of, uh, you know, a kind of a mass purging of queer <coughs> folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, we think between the 1950s and the 1990s, you know, there were 9,000 or so uh, folks who were across the the military, RCMP, and federal yeah. public service, who lost their jobs, uh, yeah. or were really um, harassed. Some were arrested, therefore criminalized. You know, and it and it led to some pretty awful things. Some mm-hmm. folks were thrown um, in hospitals um, and uh, subjected to some pretty horrendous treatment. So, what happened after um, you? basically went to court at some point what what were sort of the steps or the actions or the thought process that made you go and say I'm not going to uh roll over and just go away so to speak well you know I I think back to that time feeling like super vulnerable and Mm. unsure um I had been fired and yet I was this top performer I was It was really destabilizing and kind of quite a traumatic experience. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I, I, I realized that, um, you know, I had to get other work. I had to start explaining to people why I had to, why I left the military when I really liked it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I got a job. I went back, back to what I kind of knew, which was I, went to the federal government and I applied and I became a tax collector at the Canada revenue agency, like revenue Canada. Yeah. I, I was there for a time and then trying to kind of contend with my life. And I had the occasion of meeting Sven Robinson along Mm -hmm. this kind of path of, you know, me leaving the military and trying to resume a different kind of life for myself. Mm -hmm. I met him and he helped me. He, uh, incredibly, he reached his hand out. He, he found me in a way, you know, and, and yeah. in many ways and, and helped me get a lawyer. And I went to see the lawyer, Clayton Ruby, um, and yeah. his uh, partner in life, Harriet Sachs, who later became a judge. Yeah. And um, they helped me. Um, and, you know, I remember them saying, you have an amazing case. Like, yeah you know, we have this new charter of rights. What's it going to be? You know, are you going to do this or not? And I, and maybe briefly before we, I was going to say maybe briefly, just, um, I know who Sven Robinson is, but you know, he was a member of parliament. Um, I don't remember the exact years, but I do remember I was at Carleton university from 87 till 93, uh, fall of 87. And I, I think it was, in the following winter of 88 or 89, when he pub- publicly came out um, in one of the banquet rooms at the, I believe it was the Chateau Laurier. It was, it was a pretty important time. So that would have been, yeah, you were expelled at 89. Um, when, when did you connect with Sven and, and how long was, was he also still um, a member of parliament at that time? Well, I connected with him probably around 1989, I think, yeah. somewhere in there. Um, and, um, 
yeah, Sven Robinson is a Canadian hero. Um, He's uh, a close personal friend now. We've stayed Mm -hmm. in touch all these years. Mm -hmm. And more than 30 years, um, he had the courage to come out as a member of parliament. He has been (laughs) central to so many human rights Mm-hmm. Um, uh, debates and and uh, movements in Canada, um, and you know, I think for young folks who who may not know who he is, he is like um, somebody you have to really learn about. And yeah. you know, he served as a, an NDP member of Parliament from then. The riding was called Burnaby, yeah. uh, but from from the from the west coast near Vancouver, and you know, he was he was at the intersection of all of the, um, the, the rights movement for LGBTQ to um, equality. He, he was fighting for these things for us and uh, was often very successful. He was an yeah. incredible advocate, um, came from a legal background, but really his heart was in social justice movement. Um, yeah. So um, he helped me. And uh, so I'm glad to still actually uh, to this day, mm-hmm. it's funny that you should um, ask me to pause about Sven because um, only a mere hour or two ago, I was talking to him about some ongoing work and advocacy and activism work we're doing. Wonderful. Nice, yeah. nice serendipity then today. Indeed. So he helped you, uh, Clayton Ruby, the very big name, at least in Canadian legal um, circles for a lot of the um, cases that he's um, fought. What were sort of some of the next steps, I guess, in as much of a nutshell as you want to, because uh, <laughs> this could go on for hours, right? <laughs> so what what, what well, were sort of the pivot, pivot moments, I guess, with that? Yeah. So think about like kind <clears throat> of going to see them around 1989 or 90 and just then mm-hmm. deciding, yes, we will take this on. It'll be an early Section 15 Charter of Rights mm-hmm. case. Um, and we're going we're gonna to look at the military as an institution, as a homophobic institution, as one who had, um, you know, discrimination on the books as policy. Right. And we're going to call it out and we're going to start to call people's attention to what's happened to folks like me. Yeah. And uh, so we, we brought a case in the federal court of Canada. Actually, if, if there's any single factual mistake people make about my own case, they're often saying, oh, Michelle Douglas fought this all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, I didn't. I didn't have to. We, we filed a case in the federal court of Canada and the government was, you know, gearing up and doing research to try to justify yeah. discrimination like they. And then I think they realized the folly of it. Like we would, we had a very strong case yeah. and um, <clears throat> we brought it, you know, and, and then um, there, there were some, some funny things along the way that they tried to defend. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it had things, bizarre theories, like one of their theories they intended to use, but it didn't ultimately come out was what I call six men in a tent. And it was, they, they had this, idea that if you had six soldiers and one of those six happened to be a gay man, he would be so predatory that he wouldn't let the other men sleep in this tent and therefore diminish the fighting efficacy of these, of these other soldiers, you know, and they they had like nutty things like that. So ultimately on the eve of what was going to be a three week trial in court, the federal government, October, 27th, 1992, so 30 years ago yeah. uh, this year, um, the military settled out of court with me. And, you know, I'll just cut to the chase. So they ended that policy. And remember I told you that there are those conditions, yes. like you can stay, but you have to serve under these bizarre conditions. Yeah. yeah. And all of the people who actually chose to stay, but were under those conditions, had their ranks, their proper ranks restored. We're given the proper pay. All of that was done. And um, I see as much victory in that as what I saw for myself. Yeah, that's a, there's so much happening there. There's an aspect of, uh, I can't think, I think the words come to mind are like an honorable retribution in a way. Um, and owning up to those kinds of mistakes because, you know, I'm trying to imagine like, I, and I can't really, but 
to go into the military, as you told me at the very beginning, and having this aspect of like, this is a virtuous act for uh, like p- peacekeeping reasons that you have at heart, things that you want to explore and ways in which you want to make a difference and you're choosing this organization to be a part of, to be then told, no, <laughs> no, your virtue doesn't, it's not welcome here, right? So to turn that around so that it wasn't just, you know, cash settlement, goodbye, be quiet, you know, sign an NDR um, uh, or an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. It's like the fact that this was able to go through and properly make amends and make things right for all these other individuals is, you know, just such an empowering moment in, in queer history in Canada. Thanks to you. Thank you so much. I, yeah, I'm, I'm aware it had, it, it was an important legal decision yeah. that by the time you get an institution like the military owning up and saying, right, this is not compatible with our Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's, it is discrimination and mm-hmm. it's not justifiable. Um, in fact, um, you know, it's deeply damaging to people, people who are um, trying to serve their country, yeah. um, sacrifice for their country. And um, yeah, I, it, and it had, I mean, their policies were so devastating, you know, for young folks who were, mm-hmm. you know, trying to give their best and yet completely shamed for their authentic identities. Um, you know, there's one thing, you know, I mean, I got justice back in 1992, but it wasn't for decades later that, uh, you know, many hundreds more finally received some measure of justice as a result of a class action lawsuit. Yeah. So now we all bridge that gap between that moment of the, the, this reconciliation, the, you know, 30 years that you have been a social justice um, advocate, you've, uh, been on more boards than I think uh, Wikipedia can <laughs> keep track of. I'm just being a bit silly. You were chair of the board of directors at the 519 Community Center in 2000. Pride Toronto named you one of the grand marshals. Maybe tell us a little bit about that and then how that led up to the LGBT purge fund. And we'll dig into that. Well, yeah, by this point, I was living in Toronto and mm. really kind of catching up to the idea that uh, I was part of the queer community, um, <clears throat> part of, uh, that I had a role to play. I mean, I was fired for being a lesbian, but I barely identified as one. Like, I had just right. fallen in love with a woman. Like, I, I really had to do a lot of kind of um, right. catching up <laughs> on identity politics, right? And And so early 1990s, when I was kicked out <clears throat> in Toronto, you know, our queer community was just, you know, dealing with um, HIV and AIDS and and what was happening there. We were trying to establish other basic dignity rights, the right to be married to a person of the same sex, um, access healthcare and so on. And, and some really important um, things happening at that time. And I, I stepped in and I, I started um, working in a form of, I, activism I call legal activism, which is like working with others to bring challenges to start using the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to to seek legal change so that at least the laws weren't against us. Um, So many others had already been doing that. But, you know, I was then became part of that community and, um, you know, really, you know, standing on the, the shoulders of many who'd gone before learning, especially from queer activists who are fighting for their lives mm-hmm. um, and understanding how to make change through movement. Um, you know, folks from labor, like it was really an exciting time and um, I was in it, you know, and, yeah. and, um, and all of this, like we had no money for our activism, but it, who cared? We were, you know, lawyers would act for us for free and they're like an amazing group of lawyers. And it was, it was an amazing time. It was liberation and we were fighting, fighting for all the things we wanted to achieve. And I was just one part of that, but it was a pretty neat, pretty neat role, I have to say. Yeah. Well, one point I have to mention is that it doesn't seem like there's a lot of women in your position. 
at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of white gay men, which, you know, is on one hand, it is neither here nor there, but it's sort of like maybe the gay men make just make a lot more noise, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's also apparent to me in guests that I've had on the show. You're actually the first woman lesbian in an advocacy social justice role that I've had the opportunity to speak with. And you're not the only one. You just might be, I I'm guess, at the moment, sure. you know, one of the most well-known. Yeah, it's, it, you know, although the idea of kind of notoriety or, or you know, folks knowing uh, the journey and, yeah. and how I played a role as an activist, yeah. you know, that's kind of stuff I find, you know, it's very fleeting. It falls away qu- quickly. And yeah. frankly, once you're outside of, say, Montreal or Toronto, I now yes. live in Ottawa, you know, it's not it's, it's not as memorable. But, yeah. you know, we were in it. We were working late into the night as, as volunteers, figuring out ways, strategy, tactics, yeah. working together. If someone was going to do um, a civil action uh, of disobedience, how could others of us um, support some, a couple that wanted to be married and intervene mm-hmm. on, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for them? You know, I was involved in establishing a group called the Foundation for Equal Families, and we intervened in many cases at the time. Now, just as a sidebar, I also told you I was working for the federal government again, right? So yeah. I had this weird position of like working for them and suing them at the same time as <laughs> intervener, um, but kind of like a plug for Canada yeah, there, because yeah, yeah. only Canada could we, yeah. you know, could I do my job, take it seriously, give them my best there, but also yeah. be like, I'm holding you account. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So you are now in a role as executive director of LGBT Purge Fund. So tell us about how the fund came to be and how you then wound up in, in, in this role, also working with a, a, a team, a board of directors and right. the mandate of the fund. Sure. Well, you know, I mentioned that, you know, back in 1992, out mm. of the federal court, I had some justice for myself, yeah. but it's really... Um, you know, justice for one isn't really justice at all. Mm-hmm. And um, and it took kind of the climate of the right political climate and the right time mm-hmm. for a much larger um, class action um, procedure to, to unfold. And when the Justin Trudeau government came in in 2015, um, you know, building on the incredible uh, activism of, uh, you know, folks uh, through the We Demand an Apology Network and many other activists that have just been plugging along for decades to to try to hold the government to account on many of these issues. Um, You know, it wasn't until about 2017 or 2016, 2017, when you know, a class action lawsuit was formed when there was um, talk, serious talk of having an apology given by the prime minister on behalf of Canada to the broader LGBTQ2S community. Yeah. Um, and so that happened. The prime minister gave the apology in 2017. And at that same moment, there was an agreement in principle to settle the terms of a class action for all of those who had been victimized um, by government policy uh, in the federal government as employees. Um, So there were some amazing things that came from that. Um, Here, I look at the the, what's known as representative plaintiffs. So there were 720 members of that class action lawsuit, Mm -hmm. but three three (laughs) folks, you know, amazing people, Alita Sitalik, Martin Noir, and Todd Ross um, led or represented those folks in decisions. Mm-hmm. And they did some amazing things. First of all, they got justice for those people, some mm-hmm. measure anyway, like mm-hmm. financial compensation yeah. up to about $150,000 uh, for the most serious forms of damage. Yeah. Um, which, which is amazing. Like it was a global settlement of $145 million. Yeah. Never in the world has that happened for queer people. Like yeah. that is an incredible uh, achievement. Yeah. But they did something else. And they said, you know, there are, there are other measures that should be put in place to represent all of those people who experienced the purge, who maybe were lost um, to shame. So yeah. here we think of those who just didn't didn't make it 
um, HIV AIDS, people we lost in that time, uh, people who went back in the closet or just checked out, right? Just yeah. not able to participate in this uh, legal work. So they set aside about $25 million mm-hmm. and they set up this <clears throat> now called the LGBT Purge Fund. I can tell you what we do in a sec, mm-hmm. but by that time, I had made my career in the federal government. I left Revenue Canada long behind uh, and yeah. actually had a really successful career at the Department of Justice, mm-hmm. oddly, but oddly. in a fabulous way. Yeah. And I had the honor of working for people like um, uh, former Attorney General and Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould. Um, mm. But I was a public servant, completely politically neutral, um, and... Um, had a really good career. I retired in 2019 and then with the agreement. <laughs> I just, the way you said it just made me laugh and like entirely politically neutral. So I was like at work, entirely political, politically neutral but after hours or after dark, you know, queer right. activist at large. I, I, you know, listen, it didn't mean I couldn't take action, but <laughs> I just had to, you know, be very careful and worked really hard for whoever I was, you know, yeah. serving as a government. <laughs> government. Yeah, so with at that point, um, I had transitioned into the Justice Department and mm-hmm. retired, but the government, both the government and the representatives of the class action asked me to lead this new organization, wow. and I helped <clears throat> set it up really from the idea of what would it be called yeah. uh, to opening a bank account and deciding that the global headquarters would be here in my spare bedroom in my house. So, uh, <laughs> um, and trying to find a way to focus on reconciliation and memorializing this time, educating others about, about this time, a little known time in Canadian history. Yeah. Um, and I've been doing that full time since about 2018, 2019. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, th- there's a lot going on. You've got a, a wonderful website that details all of the different um, initiatives, uh, past and ongoing. But I, th- I suppose, unless there's something new, the biggest one that drew my attention and made me reach out to you is the monument that's being planned. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we have, I would say, about five different pillars or streams of work. Um, we are mandated as a result of a court order that class action lawsuit gave us our kind of marching orders, so to speak, mm. which I really <laughs> respect. Um, and it said that we will work with the federal government to build um, a national LGBTQ2S plus uh, monument, not just to the purge, but to the broader queer community mm-hmm. to um to memorialize periods of oppression, discrimination, but also our resilience and resistance and activism, our celebrations, our highs, our lows. So it's got to do a lot, that monument. I can talk about it. Um, we're also doing an exhibit with the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. It's in, it's in Winnipeg. And so we're going to um, put on a human rights exhibit there and, and tell folks what really happened. Um, we are working with the federal government to help them be a better employer uh, in terms of, um, you know, queer employees, right? If you're non-binary, uh, two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, mm-hmm. uh, how do you work within that federal government? Can you get recruited? Can you advance? So all the diversity and inclusion and training aspects, mm-hmm. we're doing that. <clears throat> and then finally, we're going to collect the um, historical records um, like, how the hell did any of this happen? Why did they hate us? Why did they, why did they create policies and laws and procedures that, that oppressed us so and, and, and treated us so badly that they could interrogate people in hotel rooms and, and uh, brutalize them? Yeah. So we're doing all of that. Uh, and then the kind of the fifth thing, and I'm happy to say, we, we do give out some community grants as well with this money. Uh, and we've done some really amazing things based on applications we get. So it's, yeah. I have a pretty awesome job now in leading this org. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. What would you say then over the last 30 years, and you may have already said it, um, who or what are you most proud of and why? 
And you can answer both who and what. <laughs> it's totally up to you. Yeah, I've never really been asked that question. Um, I'm, I'm really proud of the courage of people who, despite pain and trauma, have found a way to somehow either help from, you know, kind of just off stage or, or sometimes front and center. <clears throat> I'm really proud of those people because people understand it when they hear firsthand stories. So those who've shared the pain and um, I'm really proud of a group of lawyers who did work for decades for free. (laughs) Um, And actually they're part of this, right? Like they, they really, they really did some bold things and, and made change uh, very possible for us in many ways. Yeah political folks who were daring and bold and, and courageous. Uh, and, you know, in a time when it wasn't always easy to be openly um, gay or, or lesbian or, or, or trans, mm-hmm. you know, folks that really paved the way in many, many ways. Um, so I've been inspired by many, many people, people who um, I know couldn't, couldn't make it. And I, you know, I, I think about them. I, uh, I love the people I work kind of on on behalf of like they're, Mm -hmm. I'm highly motivated to achieve justice, not only for them, but more broadly, right. Be, be a human rights activist and the idea of includes like, who's not at these tables. I think of that about all the time. Yeah. who's been so marginalized they didn't they haven't seen justice and can i help can mm-hmm, i mm-hmm. you know how can i create leadership places that you know invites others in although i think about like lesbian leaders and i'm like well we have had you know a place as leaders for about you know in a, in a very big sense for about like five minutes of history so you know we're we're going to work with others and and do what we always do, which is to try to make the circle bigger and be inspired by new racialized leaders and non-binary folks who also want the seat of leadership to 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 challenge and to agitate and to you know make make better change in in the way we live. Now it's just such an invitation to reflect on how many people you know, make a movement and, and how movements come together. And uh, it, it will take leaders and people with access and even some money, but the power of folks to, to step in and say, this is really wrong and we're going we're gonna to figure out a way to change it. Like, I hope we can do that in many things, especially like the environment and stuff yeah. like that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but great question because I really, I'm not asked that question. Well, I have another uh, one that I just uh, thought of as just part of sort of some interest in um, leadership that I have that I'll sort of uh, make a connection between your answer and then the the next question I have before we wrap up is about LGBTQ leadership in action. Do in your experience or observations, and you may or may not have thought of this, but do you think we lead differently as queer people when we're fully entirely authentically vulnerably living who we are without having to closet any part of our identity. For sure. We do. Absolutely. The weight of hiding the weight of um, protecting the weight of uh, living with some fear or internalized homophobia. (laughs) That's its own form of oppression, (laughs) you know, and it it doesn't create the kind of um, emotional liberation and, and freedom to really, um, you know, step into spaces that others have had for a really long time. And um, so, yeah, when you can, when you can come with your whole self mm-hmm. and not have the fear um, or, or much of it anyway, mm. you know, of course you're a different leader and our lived experience is so legitimate, um, but we're multitudes for so many, you know, intersecting um, identities. And, and that's amazing, too, right? Like our lived experience, our, our regional linguistic, you know, kind of, you know, our experiences. Um, it, it just, you know, it's so enriching when you can finally bring all of that and um, 
think that's kind of the hope I see, frankly, for our country um, is, uh, you know, big ideas from folks who are just coming to the table now. They should have been there a lot before, but, um, you know, just uh, reflecting yesterday. So this is um, coincident with the, the visit of the Pope to Canada. And um, one moment that stood for me, and I, I, I will be reserved on how I think about anything like the apology. Um, it's not for me to, to really say, but, you know, I saw Jack Saddleback, a uh, two-spirit person from, uh, from the West, there with a trans flag in the crowd with um, an Indigenous uh, feather um, on, on the flag. Mm. And I, I was blown away about what that moment must have been like for them. Yeah. And um, the hope of like visibility is powerful. And there they were on television and um, yay, Jack, uh, just seeing that person there. I'm like, it felt really hopeful for me in, in a way that I didn't expect about the Pope's visit and so on. But um, it's just about getting people into places of visibility and power. Right. Yeah. Well, I think sort of, you know, what you're, reflecting on or seeing connects back with how you answered the question it wasn't in that moment about the pope per se it was about that person being able to uh, express their identity in a moment that's highly politicized um, and has so much for the lack of a broader word energy um, around it and, and what that means. And this, this connects me to my next question about activism, because activism has changed over the years. Uh, what, there was a question I asked Tim McCaskill uh, oh, yeah. when we were speaking about his book, um, Homo Nationalism, and how, you know, he is a, as a lifelong, you know, L, you know, gay man, gay male activist and dealing with the bathhouse raids and uh, HIV activism and such. Um, you know, you had phone trees, there was no internet, you called one person, you called six people, and those six people called six people, and you got on the street, and you had placards, you posted things up on um, telephone poles, there was a different level of on-ground, um, put it in quotation marks, confrontational, because it doesn't always mean that that became a fight, it might have just been confrontational in a sense of physically putting right. your presence in front of or doing a sit-in. So given what you've experienced is, uh, experienced in life and the challenges that you've, you've overcome, what advice would you give an aspiring change maker or activist, maybe someone younger who's just wondering how to get started and how they're actually going to make a difference with this plethora, this variety <laughs> of ways that they can become involved, but feeling like maybe they could be too small to make a difference? or that their voice is too insignificant? Right. Um, well, for sure. It's, it's you know, connecting up through social media and, um, you know, going to organizations, volunteering, um, you know, going to protest, meeting people, or, you know, just engaging politically. Uh, often, you know, politicians are like, well, I'm not really working on this, but I know there's a local community group that is, and, you know, they could probably use a hand. Um, and uh, the advice part for me would be don't let the lack of financial resources stand in your way. It seems like, well, you know, some of this uh, activism work we've done has been so poorly resourced. It's getting slightly better in my, my view. I don't know if others would hold up, but it's my yeah. sense of it. Um, uh, so, you know, proceed no matter what. Um, if it's important to you, join with like-minded folks. Yeah. Um, you know, labor's always been, you know, there on these issues. So if they're that kind of work that can be done, committee work, you know, in your workplaces, um, you know, form a group and, you know, bring others to you if, if you can't find where to go. Mm. Um, and, and don't give up. Um, the biggest, hardest challenges of our time um, will go, will outlive, will outlive most of us, I think. Um, you know, it's not like I'll see a perfect ending with a ribbon on it to, you know, the reality for queer folks in our society uh, um, in my lifetime, but it's, it's the journey um, and you go on it with others. Yeah. 
and it's deeply rewarding, right? It's enriching. It's, it builds friends. You, you look at intersectionality differently. You challenge your own biases and all of that. You know, also, I get worried about the idea that if I take a misstep along the way, if I don't say the right word on the monument, yeah. am I done? Am right. I diminished again by my own community? Like, mm-hmm. I worry about that in activism. Yeah. I'm stressed at times by not, not legitimate critique, but the prospect that one word will be so out of step, will be so wrong, that 30 years is just over for me. Wow. You know, I'm just discarded irrelevant and not worthy of being in a movement anymore. And I want to resist that. I want to, you know, because perfection isn't part of what any of us bring for sure. I know it isn't for me, but I am trying with sincerity and so is everybody else. I know, I think um, judging people uh, by their actions. Yes. But there is room for grace in social justice movements. Like, Right? Like, I don't know. Do you think there is? Oh, I think there is. I think think what's so important is, you know, for a short time, there was this idea, I think this was happening more on the college campuses in the United States, that intention didn't matter. It's like, well, then if intention doesn't matter, we should all just give up now. Um, it's, It's one thing to make a mistake, apologize, learn why that was wrong. But if if all the work and the actions back up the intentionality of justice and serving the greater good in the community, and you slip and say the one word wrong, like that's human. That's and if we can't be human, then we have nothing left to fight for. So. Um, and also, I, I'd rather be a nice activist uh, <laughs> than a mean activist, yes. to be honest. Like, I don't know. Um, yeah. Personally, it's, it's, it's helped like anger is legit though. I, I mean, of course I get that it's legit and, and people who have been traumatized and um, marginalized by the rules um, unfairly, of course, uh, have anger. I get it. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, um, I do struggle. I think as a leader at times, maybe it's because I'm thin skinned. Maybe it's because I scare, carry along a few scars from the past myself. Yes. I think these are areas that worry me about leadership right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there are some amazing thinkers and all of this, but I uh, just hope that, that we can work together collaboratively and realize that we, we're largely trying to, to lift up all boats and, and not just crush some of them or sink them. I wonder yeah. if, you know, my, my, my quick thought on that is uh, maybe we see this more in politics and whether or not we call a politician a leader is, is a, it's an entirely different debate. I think calling someone a leader is, is, is a discussion to be had about how are they actually leading and what do we decide, what in this moment are we deciding are the qualities that make of a great leader. But when, when we're seeing, you know, uh, certain individuals in the, PC Party of Canada that are acting very much American style. Um, I'm going to fire this person. I'm going to do that. That doesn't create bridges to cross. It just sets up a sharply, you know, polarized partisan divide. And to me, that's not leadership. That's dictatorship towards fascism. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can be a hard-assed economic populist but still have a heart. It just might be how you place your values in relation to what you think is important for how in which you want to govern. But if you won't listen to the people who you decide don't deserve to be served, then we've got a problem. You bet. And um, my line is that you can't, you can't work against us. Um, We're human beings with rights uh, and dignity. And respect is fundamental um, in in dealing with us. And if you're a politician who um, actively uh, works in ways by policies, uh, mm. rhetoric, um, in a fundamentally disrespectful way <clears throat> about our identities and our right to exist, even in some cases, yeah, um, 
uh, look out because I've now got more than 30 years of activism uh, yeah. behind me yeah. and I have a lot of friends and, yeah. um, and uh, maybe that's the other lesson. I haven't given up either. I'm still yeah. here. Still yeah. doing. It. Yeah. <laughs> well, to end it on a really high note, I hope what, what are you most excited about for the remainder of the year? It could be something personal. It could be something in relation to the activism that you do. Yeah, you know what I'm looking for? Um, moving the dial on um, uh, trying to uh, get more historical records um, to tell the story. I think if you don't have them or have access to them, mm -hmm. uh, it's easier to deny our truth. And um, I'm really, really committed to to doing the work of the Purge Fund and, and working with others on that project. Um, there's about 10,000 pages or so posted on the LGBT Purge Funds website. Right. Um, and they tell a story, you know, and it's not a happy story. It lifts the varnish off of, of what we think, what we kind of understood our history to be. Yeah. But that's okay. Canada's in a period of, of looking within and we're going to be better for it in yeah. lots of different ways. And this has to be one of those ways. We have to know our history Canada had a terrible history um, in the way it, it treated uh, LGBTQ2S plus folks. Mm -hmm. uh, it's getting much better in many, many areas, mm -hmm. thanks to the activists, thanks to all the vectors of change makers that, that forced that change to happen. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Michelle Douglas, I really appreciate your time and your insights and your wisdom and, you know, your dedication to... The work you've been doing these years, um, there, like you said, there are so many people that have made a profound difference. And um, I just feel honored and privileged that I've had the time to speak with you and share a little bit of your journey on my show. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad to do this and to, to talk about this. It's inspiring for me to do it, too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening or watching to this edition of Think Queerly. You might wonder, so what do what does Darren do when he's not podcasting? Well, I do a lot of other things. Uh, if I'm not coaching another LGBTQ leader, I'm writing about self-mastery practices and efficient productivity frameworks for creators and change makers who really want to enjoy their life and create a thriving business at the same time and make a difference in the world. So I recently started publishing at darrensteel.substack.com. If you've never heard of Substack, it's called a newsletter platform, even though it's more than that. But the basic idea is whenever I publish, that will be sent to your email inbox in full so you can read my latest articles at your leisure whenever it fits your schedule and you'll never miss anything that I ever publish. It's also going to be the best place going forward to be notified of any of the free webinars that I host and upcoming subscriber-only events that I'm going to try and make very exclusive to people that are subscribed to my Substack. So if this sounds like you, you can head over to the show notes and find the link. Otherwise, head over to darrensteel.substack.com. It's called Self Mastery with Darren Steele. Take good care.